Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. A history teacher, an art teacher, and an engineer walk into a bar. What happens next? It's Game Changers again. Our guest today is Ted Dintersmith. He's one of the leading thinkers and doers in the world who are imagining answers to the provocation what school could be. In fact, Ted's whole initiative has been built around this idea of helping to think about innovation, about change, and about the future of education. He's a serious intellect and a seriously nice bloke. I'm excited to talk with him. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our series premium sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are delighted to be partnering with the team at Open Parachute. If you want to teach mental health to your students, but you don't have time to become an expert, Open Parachute can help. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Bill, it is so wonderful to be with you again today. I'm really excited for our guest. But before we get started, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you this morning? Oh, look, look, Adriano, I, I have some exciting news to share. We have an Aldi supermarket in Fitzroy now. Wow, and, that, very... and, that, and, and so that just, that just goes to show that culture has finally reached us. And I was there this week and I discovered perhaps the perfect pasta. Because I know you, you know, you've got Italian heritage, you enjoy your pasta. How's this? Gluten-free with quinoa. So wow. PNA that is gluten-free with quinoa. We've, we've, we've reached the apotheosis of civilization, Adriano, here in Detroit. I think, I think every Italian's just shut their borders listening to that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> God, God, gluten-free quinoa pasta. Okay. Well, I've, I've heard everything now. Uh, I, I don't think we can continue any more of this conversation. We need to really get to our guests. Ted, it is so wonderful to have you with us here on Game Changers. I'm going to launch directly into our very first question and a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, can you tell us a little bit about your own story, how you've gotten to where you are today? Well, I want to start with the quinoa pasta, because that sounds pretty <laughs> darn good. So I'm putting a request into my wife as we speak. I'm texting her. Uh, I spent most of my career in the world of venture capital, so I was backing entrepreneurs, working with you know early stage companies with high potential. And there was a lot that was great about that. I, I enjoyed every minute of it, actually. But as I came through that, a couple of things became apparent. You know, The first was that while innovation has lots of good things to it, as machine intelligence gets more and more powerful, it diminishes or flat out eliminates many, many jobs in the economy. And, and we're not in the ninth inning of that. I'm not sure what the cricket version would be, but, but we're in the first, second inning of that. And so if it's routine, it will be done by a machine, point number one. Second, which wasn't so much on my mind at the beginning, but we've seen here dramatically, I'm sure you're seeing some of it, how much uh, social media, the algorithms that drive it, challenge what's required to be an informed, productive citizen. So massive challenges for career, massive challenges for citizenship. You kind of start looking in that world and you say, okay, what should school experiences be like to prepare young, young adults for that world? 
and you get sort of an image of what would really prepare kids for that world. And then you look at what the reality is today. And if they were close to each other, I would be fully retired and just having fun. But they are as far apart as Charlottesville, Virginia is from Australia. You know, the, the gap is humongous. And I never blame the teachers for it. I'm a big, big fan of teachers. But in our country, and I think most countries fall into line with this, the, the real issue is the priorities and the policies and the data-driven testing that happens. And you start to look at it. When I visit schools, I'll say, I'll ask them this. I'll say, if I put a new student in here tomorrow who excelled at memorizing material, replicating low-level procedures and following instructions, my bet is that student would be on your honor roll. Elementary school, secondary school, college, I don't care. They'll be on the honor roll. The answer is, you're right. They would be on the honor roll. But you know, the problem is that's what machine intelligence does perfectly instantly for free. Mm -hmm. And so, so we, if we push kids to get good at exactly what machine intelligence will always be better than, than them at, and we drive out of them their curiosity, their creativity, their audacity, what are you left with? And I view that as a massive challenge to not just the future of millions of kids, but to the stability of a liberal democracy. And you know, it's really interesting uh, sitting here listening to you share uh, some of those insights as we commence this particular episode. I think I was, re I was reading, no, I, I don't think I was, I was reading an article the other day, just trying to think about what magazine it was from, but it was, it was around this tension between what we value. Do we value credentials in education or do we actually value education? And, you know, there's, there's a real difference in that. So much of your book, What Could Schools Be?, in some ways touches upon what we value and what we, how we need to go forward. What motivated you to write that book about the possibility of what schools could be, not only today, but of course, into the future? Well, I'll back up a little. I, I got started in this uh, a little over 10 years ago. My first initiative was a film, which actually, Australia is maybe the third most active viewing country, so most likely to succeed. I'll give you guys a link and you can post it for anybody who wants to see it. Great film, shows students working collaboratively on big, ambitious cross-disciplinary projects, students trusted to teach to their passions. We captured it. I had a great director who did a wonderful job, you know, Sundance, Tribeca, a bunch of great film festivals, 10,000 community screenings in 35 different countries. And I started traveling with that and people, you know, would ask me, you know, like, is this just one school? You know, where, what else are people doing? So I, I felt like that was a great way to show people what's possible. But I also felt like too many people with business backgrounds. So I'll dump a little bit on me and my background and my compatriots is I think too many people with business backgrounds bring a degree of arrogance to the world of education. You know, we all went to school. So therefore we all must be experts. And the reality is it's very exacting. I mean, there's a degree of professionalism that's required to engage and inspire kids, to help them learn in a meaningful way. And so I sort of felt like I owed it to myself to listen and learn from teachers. And so I took this ambitious trip all across the United States. I went to every single state and just met with, I had, I had 200 school visits, probably a thousand forums or meetings. And I wasn't really at the beginning of that thinking about writing a book, but I mean, I felt the stories teachers shared with me that they were so generous, so dedicated. They often were being pushed to do things they didn't believe in. And so many of them had created the most amazing learning experiences for their kids. 
that, hey, I got to write about this. So I took on that process and wrote a book called What School Could Be. And, you know, it's done really well. I mean, I, I, I actually wrote two books. You know, I wrote the first draft, which was so bad, even I didn't want to read it. Because <laughs> that was just kind of like, first I went here, then I went there, then I went to the next place. And, and honestly, nobody cared about that. And then the, I sort of dumped that and rewrote a book where I just said, what did I really learn? What, what were the big takeaways? And it really got at the beginnings of what I've done now for the last four years, which is what are change models that work? How do you put in place the conditions that let teachers and students do their very best work? Ted, I want to pick up on that notion of change that works. I've got a, the two or three sort of things that I want to follow through. You, you mentioned that your film did nicely in Sundance. Can I pick up that idea to start with? If we want change to work, we need to get things out of Sundance and into the suburban multiplex because that's where most teachers and most people watch their movies. There is this tendency in education for a highly progressive, highly change-focused small group to sit in a bubble and talk to each other about the wonderful future that is. And then there's the majority of the profession who don't have enough resource, they don't have enough time, they feel as though they don't have enough support, they're exhausted, and they're just trying to get from today to tomorrow. It's very difficult for them to think strategically or even to think about what change is because they're in that fight or flight reactive mode that says, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, and so on. What have you seen about change that works in education? I'll start with two pieces of good news. First, this isn't nuclear fusion. You know, we don't have to come up with some brand new invention that's never been thought through before. You know, we've got educators all around the world who know what to do. You know, it goes back to, you know, Montessori and uh, Dewey. I mean, you know, like these aren't new. People say, isn't this the next new thing? I say it's actually quite an old thing, right? I mean, we know what engages kids. We know what real learning looks like. The second thing I think is encouraging and good news is that we don't have to put this into kids. I, when, when I want to get my audiences excited, I say, just visualize some four and five-year-olds. You know, they are curious. They are creative. They will try a million things. They don't worry about failure. I mean, there are these characteristics you see that are innate to us that if we just preserve them, even if we help blossom and, de- blossom and develop them, these young adults would be off to the races. The, the issue is really that we impose on our schools these priorities and policies. I often say that too many people in education policy roles care a lot more about data than they do about children. The degree of trust they extend to teachers in their profession is minimal. And and if we don't change that, we're not going to get this right. And so I advocate for it. I've got these initiatives that are making some really promising progress in different places here and around the world where if we put in place the conditions, support teachers with resources so that they can feel safe taking confidence, building smaller steps, and, and they feel trusted and respected that it's up to them to decide what they want to do instead of somebody coming along and saying, you have to do this, there are really remarkable things that can happen. And, and so I do think when people say, will we ever change schools? I think absolutely. There are a lot of schools changing, but I think that we need to think really hard about that change model. And we hear have endured, you know, 25 years of No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top and Common Core and on and on where some small group of people get around a table, usually, by the way, education PhDs. I hope I'm not stepping on any toes here. No, 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 mine's in history, mate. (laughs) Yeah, you know, so, so, but, you know, they they just sort of deign themselves as we're the experts. We're going to tell everybody what they have to have kids learn. 
And they take that student voice and that teacher autonomy out of the picture. And, and I think what you end up with is people carrying out a mission they don't believe in. They had no voice in it. They don't think it makes sense. And you don't get anywhere near people's best work under those circumstances. Yeah, look, it's fascinating hearing you talk about autonomy in that way. And I think Adriano is going to follow up with some questions on agency a little bit later. The work that we do is formed on a simple premise that is hardly new, and that is that the job of the school is the character of the individual. In other words, it's about producing good people who are future builders and continuous learners and unlearners. They're solution architects, they're responsible citizens, and they're team creators. That's they're the six graduate outcomes that we might define, which speak to our time and the immediate future of our students. But, you know, you could have gone back to schools 2,000, 2,500 years ago, and you would have heard people talking about similar sorts of things. So the answer is, in our mind, is not necessarily about innovation all of the time, but it's certainly about achieving better outcomes. I want to stick, if I can, with the provocation I I put to you just a, a short while ago about people being time poor and resource poor. You've got to background in venture capital. You've got some expertise and investment. Really, really interested in the idea. If you've got a school principal who comes to you and says, I've got limited time and limited dollars, what should I invest in to improve outcomes for students? What sort of answer would you give that principal? One of the keys, I think, and, and I've seen this over and over and over again, is if you're bought into, if you believe in the instruction-driven content coverage model, particularly when it's content the kids have no interest in, it is exhausting for the adult to try to make that happen. You know, you're sitting in front of a bunch of kids and you're trying to bring to life the magic of balancing chemical equations or uh, factoring polynomials or understanding the difference between opposite and ibid. You know, most kids will hold up their hand or in their own mind think, am I ever going to use this? And the answer honest answer is no, you know, it's only in the bullshit of school. And and so that is a very labor intensive model for educators. If we shift our focus and and say, we're going to put less priority on what somebody somewhere has decided kids have to learn, which by the way, is often obsolete material that no one particularly has interest in. And we instead focus on our kids learning. What did they want to learn? let them go deep on it. You know, then you start to find, because I'm going to get right at your point about teacher fatigue, which is a big deal. And you guys are in a much better situation when it comes to the pandemic versus where we are, where it's, it's continues to be a mess. We've done such a poor job here and there is widespread exhaustion. But what I find is when schools, you know, classroom teachers, schools, even districts have intentionally said, we're going to give kids more autonomy in picking what they want to learn. Let the teacher play a role in guiding and and directing and opening up their eyes to adjacent categories. The joy comes back into teaching. The learning is meaningful and sticks and it's far more time efficient for the teachers. And so to me, if that principal said to me, what's the best thing I could do? I would say, don't make all your teachers think about this, but ask which teachers, if they're already doing it, great. But which teachers are willing to start taking some small steps to transferring more of the learning responsibility to the students so that the students are actually driven to do it by their intrinsic motivation? And you could sort of step back and say, I'm going to help, but I'm not here to, you know, heaven forbid by Zoom, you know, like, like it is mission impossible, I think, to, you know, be 
trying to get kids on a Zoom screen to see the magic of who knows what, you know, and, and, and when the kids aren't interested in it. And so, so when you start to say, my priority is, are these kids learning more than what they're learning? I think you see joyful teaching and meaningful learning. So, so much of what I'm hearing you share with us today is around the notion that curiosity definitely is greater than conformity. And I'm interested in exploring that a little bit further from the perspective of this exhausted teacher or this exhausted educator, or even a system that feels a little bit exhausted because everything's being thrown at them uh, because they continue to operate in, in the space of conformity because standardized testing requires that, compliance requires that, uh, you know, everything is measured in such a way that it requires that. For us to shift, do you think that we actually now need a new relationship with failure? Absolutely. Who's ever done anything great that didn't have multiple failures on the way? You know, people will say failure is good. I've had my share. And, you know, in the world of, of uh, startups, you know, there, there are a lot of startups that fail. And failure is now not fun, right? You know, like, I don't think anybody should say, I'm going to make my life all about failing. That's, that, you know, but I prefer, you know, iterating, you know, like, like we tried this and it didn't work, but what do we take away from it so that the next try we make has a better chance? And, and sometimes you run out of time and you don't get the result you want. But I think once you unleash kids, and, and honestly, that's what I find so interesting and in, in where we're seeing the, the bright spots across the schools we work with is when you ask and invite kids, create something you are really excited about that in some way makes a positive contribution to your, to your world, that's transformational. And, and if you say, keep going, you know, like try something that may not work, but learn from it and then try something else. But, you know, and, and I'll tell you what I think, you know, and most of the people listening, if you look at the way we assess kids, you know, a lot of schools will say it's on their website. Oh, failure is a good thing. We want the growth mindset. We want, you know, like blah, 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 blah. I would say, tell me about your assessments. If two thirds through a course, if a kid has a C grade or worse, can they still get an A? By and large, the answer is no. It's baked in. And then you start to say, are you really telling kids midway to have taken a bunch of chances? And, you know, when you think about the projects you've done, I just told you. So back up the clock 10 minutes ago, halfway through writing a book that's probably the best-selling book in education for the last two years, halfway through, if you'd given me a grade, it would have been an F. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to read it. My wife wouldn't read it. I asked a couple of friends to read it. They got about halfway through and they said, Ted, I think this is really not going to go anywhere. F. <laughs> It would have been an F at the midpoint. If I had then written an A book for the second half, if my grade was a C, that'd be a pretty poor assessment framework. But I think that's what most kids live with. So what do they say? I'm not going to risk spending time on something that could be an F because I'll never get the weighted average back to an A. You know, we have to walk the walk when we talk the talk. Yeah, you've touched uh, so much today upon the conditions in many ways that lead to deep and, and powerful learning. That was going to be my next question, but I want to move the conversation along the line towards something else that you've touched upon, and that's around the construct of intrinsic motivation. So much of self-determination theory is born from an individual's intrinsic motivation. We know that grades credentials are often the extrinsic motivation for young people. And for many, they actually still have a place. You know, there are many young people in schools that actually aspire for those type of things. And, and I respect that. 
But more and more, so much of learning going forward, and particularly with pandemics relating to mental health issues that are, that are inflicting so many young people, this movement towards a more intrinsic motivation to do the work that they do is, is crucial. Part of that is a shift in the conversation to student agency, where we can continually kind of interrogate the learner agency and the self-determination in school communities. I almost feel that they are often the least discussed things, but probably now become the most fundamental if we're going to have change. My question to you, though, is this. Is increased student agency really about expanding freedom or is it simply increasing choices? Ah, good question. I'll start with, you know, and I love to work back from the from adult world for kids. And, and when I talk to employers, you know, one of the things they say is when we hire students out of college or high school, I hope more and more of them hire out of high school, they'll say, you know, like they're smart, they're motivated, but they fundamentally keep asking me almost hourly, what do I need to do? You say to them, who do you want to hire? And they'll say a couple things. They'll say, I want somebody that if I could say, hey, we need some help in this area, it's not working, go figure it out, can organize their efforts identify, kind of sort of critically analyze what's wrong, come up with some solutions that might work and move it forward. So adult organizations want agency. They want, you know, employees that are driven to do better things for that organization. They want, by the way, people that ask great questions. You know, you ask employers, would you rather have a new employee who asks great questions or one who can give you a formula-like answer anybody can find on Google? And then, you know, great questions. So you sort of start with that. Then back to this question of what you're looking for with students, I think that oftentimes, you know, it, and I'll make this, this is very much a U.S. observation, and, and I'd have to visit more schools in Australia to say that this is the case there, so I don't want to overstate, overstate. But in U.S. schools, most of the motivation for our kids comes from the parents. And, and so when school is boring and irrelevant, when nobody sees the use of it, when it's just shoved down their throat, you'll find circumstances in the U.S. where the parents will say, get good grades and I'll give you an iPhone. Or uh, get good grades and I'll get you a new iPad. You know, I'll, I'll bribe you somehow or I'll ground you if something wrong happens. And the kids that are in more challenging home circumstances don't have that pressure. And so they don't think it's very interesting. Their schools are often under-resourced. It's just very hard for the teacher to bring balancing chemical equations to life for 35 kids. And they just kind of lose interest. What, what I find as I travel is that if you invite kids to create something themselves, that they can explain why it will make a positive contribution to their world. That's simple. Come up, do something that you believe will make your world better, which could be a song. It could be art. It could be an engineering application. It could be a whole rank. It could be a history critique. It doesn't matter. Something you're driven to do. What you find is a couple of things. One, that the kids in the more challenging circumstances often just step up and blow you away with that. The kids that have been micromanaged with their parents often kind of freeze up, like that's too ambiguous. Like, what do you mean? Like, uh, I need more structure so I know what I'm gonna to do to get an A. And so that's really telling and important, particularly when you think about how invaluable that type of experience is to prepare you for the adult world. But it also just invites the development of all the other skills and mindsets you want kids to have. And so to me, it's that, and it doesn't have to be, for my kids, I'd probably want it to be all of school, a lot of people might be nervous about that, but I would argue it should definitely be part of the school experience for every kid. And what I, troubles me, but it gives me some hope, I mean, it's sort of a mixed bag, is when you get to fundamental things like intrinsic motivation, curiosity, creativity, you see boatloads of it with the really young kids. 
then you fast forward to high school and high school classes i observed the only question is will this be on the test you ask the kids why you're studying this i said i'm studying it to get a good grade why are you studying it to, well i got to get into the right college talk to college professors it's like a rare day when somebody will come to office hours and say i'd like to talk to you about your area of research because i find it very interesting it's more why did you get a bad grade or what will be on the test i mean like we do it to these kids we you know it's not the kids fault we do it to them and and i think we're losing so much in that process. So Ted, let's go there for a moment because I mean, there's a couple of things that you talk about in there. I think um, for little tiny kids who don't know what the world is, it's it's much easier to imagine what the world might be. And then we spend the next 10 years telling them how it is and what must be around that. So I mean, there's, there's a natural thing there that I don't think schools necessarily should bear responsibility for, which is that you have to learn about the world as it is. But there has to be a balancing act in terms of how the world is, how the world might be, curiosity and so on. In any system which is based on high stakes testing at the end, which is designed to produce a number, to rank you, to determine what opportunity you're going to have in life to study next and to gain financial advancement, then we're going to end up in that place that you talk about. So it's a question of policy, I think, Ted and Adriana. It's a question that says, how do we free ourselves of this antiquated social Darwinistic sorting tool called the high stakes examination? Because if we do that, then I think we might have a chance of doing all the sort of stuff that you're talking about, Ted, which I love, and you're talking about, Adriana, which I also love. You know, and I think you have less intensity there about college outcomes than we have in the U.S. In the U.S., it is uh, pervasive. You know, the, the, I can't even begin to overestimate or overstate how many families obsess about where their kid gets into college. And I think as long as that's the case, it's very difficult to, you know, get it's a, the equivalent of the dog gnawing on a pork chop with no meat on the bone or something, you know, and they just, but the, but, they're but, just but on that college pork chop. And sure, sure. But that's a part of that is also because yeah. we're, we're in a country where we've got the government subsidizes significantly the cost of a tertiary education, which means it places it into the category uh, of something which is expensive, but affordable and deferred through a sensible government loans initiative. As a result, families aren't paying $200,000 US for a college degree. They're paying 20,000 Australian, and it's getting deferred in a sensible fashion that gets garnished from wages. That's a policy decision. You know, it's another one of these sorts of things. So, you know, if we, if we, if it's all about the high stakes thing. So, how, how do we influence a political discourse that says these are the shifts we need to make? Because if we, if we, if society doesn't lead in this way, teachers won't. Well, and, and your college situation is quite different from ours, as you mentioned. Um, you know, one of the things I observe and I'm excited about it because I'm piloting some things here, but I'll observe sort of the, the concern side, which is the number of college graduates, and I interview a bunch, and I'll say to somebody after 16 years of education, and often, as you say, $100,000, $300,000 here, I'll say, what are you good at right now that an adult or organization would value? Can you edit video? I mean, you know, do you have a tangible skill that an adult organization would pay you to do for them right now. And, and all too often, and, and when I say that, I'm talking about 90, 95% of our college graduates are not good at anything that the adult world values. Or they'll say, well, I, I majored in accounting and um, 
you know, the, you've talked to the employers and they'll say, I almost wish they hadn't taken it because they learned some accounting theory. That's not how we do it, but they come in and think they know about it. So I'm really advocating for here, you know, equipping kids through middle and high school with proficiencies that really matter. And, and I'm really focused on not coding because I think a lot of people gulp the coding Kool-Aid, but on using existing tools to bring real productivity enhancements to things. And so we've got these things going on across the US where kids are learning how to develop websites using Squarespace or graphic design using a Perth Australia founded company called Canva with Melody Perkins. But you know, kids get good at these tools, create things during school elective or after school club, and then get great summer jobs with that. The reason I mentioned that is I think if people are obsessing about path A being the only thing, which is more and more and more years of education, then they're going to keep doing the things that education craves, which is often more, you know, higher test scores or more advanced placement courses or more whatever. And if they start to see, hey, I can actually create a career independent of more formal education, then it's very empowering for these young kids. And it, it sort of brings a degree of relaxation around it because this will sound a bit anti-college, so bear with me, but, but I find it in our country, you know, the, the answer we've continued to put forward is that the solution is just more years of education. Well, high school isn't enough, go to college. Well, college isn't enough, get a master's degree. You know, it's like, like somehow just more years of academic formalism is the answer to success. And people run up massive amounts of student loan debt. And as I said, they don't have, they're not really good at anything that matters. They may on paper look like they've learned something, but it's really pretty hollow. And so I think that if we don't start changing that, because we all live in a world where anybody wants to learn something can learn it on their own. I think if you're really motivated and you get good at learning how to learn, you can figure it out on your own. So that's to me begs for more of a focus on, hey, it's a success if you are off and running without more formal education. And as you know, in the creative economy, people care about examples of work, not so much grade point average or credentials. And I think that's a very healthy thing. Let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners about the important work of Open Parachute for wellness in schools. You know your students are struggling with their mental health, but you're not a trained therapist. Open Parachute can help you. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Recently, the OECD published, Tim, a new paper around four scenarios for the future of schooling. One of those scenarios was simply that schooling was just going to be extended. So primarily the structures and processes of schooling as they are today is going to remain with a little bit more of kind of individualised learning. Another was the idea that education was going to be outsourced, that traditional schooling systems break down and society becomes more directly kind of involved in, in educating its citizens and learning takes place through more kind of diverse, uh, privatised and flexible arrangements, of course, with digital technology being a main driver. Another option that they came up with was that schools as learning are going to become learning hubs, where schools kind of remain, but they, the, the diversity and experimentation becomes more of the norm, where, where the opening more of, of the school walls uh, that connects the schools to the communities. Uh, and, and, you know, as they kind of form uh, a collab of learning with community, their civic engagement, and of course, you know, social innovation. And their fourth area was this notion of learn as you go that learning and education takes place any, everywhere, anytime, that distinctions between formal and informal kind of learning are no longer valid as, as a society turns itself entirely to the power of the machine. And you've touched upon, you know, the rise of machine learning and automation, artificial intelligence. 
I think it's great that there are these organisations and think tanks that keep talking about and throwing up possibilities, particularly as we we grow out of the, the key learnings of the pandemic. But I want to flip it a little bit. I want to ask you this question. What aspects of school do you believe that we should preserve 10 or 20 years or even longer into the future? Yeah, <laughs> That's, you know, you would think I'd have a long list immediately. <laughs> Not necessarily, I, I, but. Yeah, well, I think I, at first I love, you know, Teachers, you know, sometimes people will say, will teachers be obsolete? Absolutely not. Now, will somebody who stands in front of a class and drones on and then test them with multiple choice questions be obsolete? They already are obsolete. But teachers, teachers enter the profession to engage and inspire young kids that will never be obsolete. It's needed now more than ever. Preserve that role for teachers. Trust them more. I think that will happen. I think we get a lot right in the early grades when we, in some ways, take school less seriously. So I hope that we preserve all the best of those early grades. A lot of the later stuff, I'm actually more inclined to say we need to wholly rethink it instead of preserve it. Because, you know, when I make a list of what, you know, our kids study in high school, you know, and you, you put that up and say, how much of it do you actually use as an adult? It's actually remarkably little, you know, and, and you know, the list that, you know, when you ask people what you wish you would learn, you know, financial literacy, public speaking, you know, there are a whole long list of things people wish they had learned, design thinking, good one, you know, and then what they actually learned. And it's, it's largely relegated to the world of school. And so, but I think that, you know, in that list, the OECD list, I'm a big fan of Andreas there. He does great work. Well, they're not mutually exclusive categories, but I do think mm -hmm. that, idea of breaking down the boundaries of schools reaching out into the community because kids get motivated by making a positive contribution. I mean, that's one of the great things about the younger generation. They do want to make a difference. They do care. Mm -hmm. And and if we mm -hmm. unleash that creative power on initiatives that in their own way they've defined and they carry forward, I think it's very empowering for these kids. And in the process, you've got your list of six, which are a great list of competencies you want kids to get. Those are the types of initiatives that they actually come away from making progress on the things that matter as adults. So much of what the OECD is advocating for, well, they're really just throwing up provocations of possibilities in many ways. It's not just advocation. But they are also, you know, highly dependent upon the continual evolution of digital technology and how it can continue to provide great access for so many learners. What we, of course, have discovered during the pandemic is that even in a developed country like Australia, the digital divide is real, that there are so many individuals still, uh, particularly in our Western world, that don't have access to the right bandwidth, they don't have access to the necessary devices to assist them in, in, in building those uh, connections. And so, you know, that continues to be a challenge for, for many educators. And I'm sure that would, wouldn't be that a dissimilar story to, to what's occurring in the United States right now. You touched upon also there the, the uh, opportunity of opening up the walls and allowing community in as well. And I suppose that speaks to the notion of it takes a village, a village to raise a child and, and you know, how we can support it. It's interesting to see the rise of technology. It's interesting to see the impact that technology is having on a community. And I can't help but think that we are big endorsers, Phil and I, of a technology-enhanced uh, or enriched learning ecosystem. But we're also big supporters of a human-centred ecosystem, one that has a deep consciousness of planet, place, and, of course, people. 
So my question to you is this, what then is the role in the future school for emotional competency or social emotional learning going forward? That's a great question. I want to back up and start with what you observed at the beginning and agree in some ways, you know, that, um, you know, it's interesting, right, is that the people who develop all this great technology generally don't want it in the lives of their kids when their kids are young, you know, Hmm. and too often we just feel like the answer to everything is carpet bombing schools with you know tablets and, and whatever. There's a lot of really bad education that's based on computers that makes no sense. Inter- inter- interactive whiteboards as well too. We spend yeah. hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars around the world putting the greatest white elephant at the front of every classroom for seven thousand bucks a pop. Uh, you know, anyway, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, I'll, 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 I'll no, get back off no. my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm in agreement. You know, now in a pandemic when kids are at home and they have no internet access and no device, very different story. And, and when you use in my book, What School Could Be, I talk about this great superintendent in the second poorest district in the country where he did this Wi-Fi and wheels program and got his community to put up the money. But he was letting his kids use technology to invent and create and to explore not just to watch boring lectures online. And, and honestly, I find some amazing schools that have no technology. So I'm with you. The human-centered aspect, you know, and, and that comes back to why of all the professions I think have crosshairs on their back, teachers might be the last. I mean, I think it's one of the professions that will endure year in and year out is that they are the key to opening up kids' eyes to a lot of the, it's a pejorative tool, term, the soft skills. But I mean, you know, you're not going to teach a kid empathy in a textbook. You're going to teach a kid empathy by modeling it with the adults in the school and highlighting where they're great examples. I also want to shout out a very uh, enthusiastic embrace of the liberal arts. And, you know, I find so many times people will say, why do you want to do that? You know, like, you know, and I've already expressed my views about college and the fact that I think we could reduce the amount of years in formal college education and, and everybody could be better off. But, you know, you know, we'll hear, you know, like parents will say, well, what are you going to do with a history major? Or why would you ever major in English? Or why would you ever do anthropology? You know, like you should be an accounting major or you should be a computer science major or whatever else. I actually, you know, I, I'm proof positive. I spent way too long in school, you know, so I, but, but education background, you know, PhD in engineering, master's in physics, undergraduate in physics and English, then 35 years in technology businesses. The only one of those that really helped me was the English background, but it helped me a lot, right? I mean, not just a little bit, it helped me a lot. And so I think the liberal arts is a, it's not just for bringing a humanistic perspective to our students, but I think it's actually amazing career preparation. And I think we lose sight of that because we, we miss the fact that if you can write clearly that's a huge career advantage. If you can analyze complex material, that's a huge career advantage. And so, so I really think we need to step back from a lot of the things we're sort of taking as givens, you know, that the pragmatic skills are the better career prepper, blah, 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 blah. And I think trust our teachers to educate kids in the full human sense of the word. Ted, I don't think you're going to get any argument on, on, the, on the value of a liberal arts education from either of us. I, I think one of the things that I, I think is interesting um, and let me, let me take it away from personal preference here and, and take it to the world of data and data that is useful. QS did a, have done some um, research back in August, September of 2020, talking about international students around the world. And these are students who are studying abroad. Only about 6% of them are doing humanities-based courses. 
or social science-based courses, almost all of them are doing numeracy-heavy professional degrees of some sort. So it's engineering or it's science or it's mathematics or it's accounting and so on. They are desperate to go overseas and get a cultural experience. That's why they want to travel internationally because they recognise that the programs they're doing are not necessarily giving them that groundedness. And I don't want to diss on people who are doing degrees like that. What we're seeing is we're seeing a group of students saying, well, here's a set of competencies to complement the ones that I'm learning my college degree. It's the same way that humanities people like me spend the rest of their life reading about physics and mathematics and trying to work out how to add up and remember how to do long division because we kind of have to. In all of this, we understand that there is this holistic set of competencies that engages us with the world. We understand that schools can't continue to operate exclusively in local contexts. There has to be a sense of connectedness. How can we help prepare students to identify and confront problems that they really care about and to collaborate beyond classroom rules and to get out there in the world to do it? I mean, you, you talk about this. How do we help schools position students to do that? I guess, how do we help them be intentionally purposeful about what is happening? You know, if people go to, to my site, it's whatschoolcouldbe.org. So I, it's all free. So I'm not putting in a commercial plug here. Um, but it, it, it's stunning to me how seldom we will ask kids in school what you want to learn. How seldom we will we'll say to kids, what would you like to create that could make your world better? And so we're fans of not only doing that, but doing it more in a manageable way. Instead of saying, you're gonna, we're going to completely throw out everything you were going to do this semester and have it be organic, freeform running, which, which actually with my own kids, I probably say go for it. But most people get really nervous about that idea. As we say, start with a couple days, you know, like give kids a Thursday and Friday and just say, whatever you think would be bold and great that you've been just itching to do. And it could be anything, right? Write a song, write a poem, write a book, write a, you know, go deep on the history. You know, like it really is more... What are you really passionate about? Go for it. But then, and I think this is really important. Share what you did during that period with your classmates, with your teachers, because it's incredibly motivating for kids, not to just hand an assignment and get an 83 back with a couple of scribbled comments in red ink, but to say, figure out something, go deep on something, but share with your classmates, teach them what you learned, tell them what you accomplished. And that is incredibly motivating for kids. And, and actually in the process, they get good at teaching others, which is ultimately a great form of accountability. Because I think too often, you know, I, I had a chat a couple of days ago with Tony Wagner, um, who I've done a lot with. And I, I imagine many of the people listening to this know Tony's work. But, but we were talking about the fact that we're in some ways, progressive educators have fallen short, is not closing the loop and saying, we're gonna hold kids accountable to getting really good at what they're doing. And, and so if you're going to be, you know, go deep on whatever, you know, like hold them to a high standard, have them teach others, have them be able to explain and defend what they did. And I think have them in the process develop hireable proficiencies, which could come from any path. You know, like you can be incredibly interested in anthropology, but along the way, if you get good at data analytics and statistics, you're suddenly remarkably hireable. You know, somehow we think of liberal arts as being only, but, but it can be mainly. But if we append to that something that's, that's a career opener, a career advantage, suddenly you've got kids that are well-rounded kids pursuing what they're interested in, but not piling up on the sidelines with no career prospects. And, and education should not be entirely about career, 
But I think you owe it to a kid if they've been in school 12 to 16 years that they leave being able to support themselves. But I don't think that seems like a distracting objective in the process. Ted, this has been a wonderfully inspiring conversation uh, today. Billy's going to wrap it up in a moment, but I have one more question uh, for you. And that is a simple one or maybe complex. What's next? Against the kind of context of this kind of unparalleled challenges, the complexity and the uncertainty that we find ourselves in today's world, how might we lead learn, live and work with fearless inquiry to face an unknown and turbulent future with hope and gratitude. So what's next for the, for our kids? What's next for nations and what's next for me? I mean, I think kids, as I, one of my hopes, and, and as I say, you guys have been slammed worse than we've been, we've been really slammed, is I am riveted on making sure, doing all I can anyway, to make sure we don't just slide back into normal. You know, we've had this disruption. We've seen the kids who have voice of what they're learning. We've seen the kids who are driven by intrinsic motivation, keep learning whether the school's open or closed. You know, that, that, that. We, we are sort of, it's right in front of our eyes, the upside potential if we get this right. And so broadly across schools, whether in the US or Australia or wherever, that's one of my fervent hopes is we sort of use this period of disruption to say, well, we're not going back to normal again. For me, you know, I, I mentioned before the, the website, all free, so not a commercial plug, but we're going to be rolling out next month. I've got a big feature session at South by Southwest EDU where we announce this, but we're, we're taking all of our resources and integrating them with a platform so that, so that if you're in a school in, you know, any province in Australia, if you're in a district, whatever, you can form your own private community. You can communicate. Across. It's almost like having your own private Facebook groups, but we also have coaching offerings. And so, you know, I'm talking to Posse Solberg, will you do a coaching series for any educators anywhere? And so we're doing all that to sort of bring a community and a collaboration and a coaching element to what we're doing. And then, you know, we chatted before we got going on this, but, you know, uh, I was actually supposed to be in Australia now that got blown up by the pandemic. And so I've sort of bookmarked and I've been chatting with Posse about doing some equivalent of what's, I, what school could be. I went all over the United States and we wrote about great things. We said, wouldn't it be cool to go all over Australia? And because I have been to actually, you know, all of your states and territories. So I've at least got some pre-existing relationships everywhere. But, but we're sort of bookmarking that because I'll say one of the things that I think is working in your, your nation's favor is I think you're less stressed and obsessed about the college piece we found great receptivity to, to our film. And I think there's sort of this balance between pragmatic and applied and academic and theoretical that is really healthy. And I think there's sort of a can-do attitude there. So, you know, my, my message to anybody listening to this in Australia is that some schools, some bigger entities, districts, some entire countries are going to get this right going forward. And this won't be a slight economic advantage for that country this will be a massive economic advantage. And, and kind of wake up call note, the, the country that we're, that's watched my film most likely to succeed the most, China. More people have watched it mm. in China than any place. Now they got a lot of people, but, but they're very serious about rethinking education and to try to get more innovation and more creativity and more agency and intrinsic motivation in their graduates. So I think if the rest of the world sort of is asleep on this, it's, it's at their peril. But I really would, would say, hey, Australia, if somebody said, put your chips on the table for who's going to make the most amazing progress going forward, 
I think you've got a lot of things lining up in your favor to be sprinting. So anyway, so, so fingers crossed we can travel again. Fingers crossed this dang pandemic is behind us. And uh, book me on a flight, meet in person. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Ted, 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 that would be amazing. And and I think you can sign Adriano and I up to either the uh, the real or the virtual tour. We do. We enjoy doing global gatherings and also national gatherings where we bring people together around this. I think so much of what you've talked about today with us is is about the inspiration of what can be done and what actually is possible and the way in which all of the sorts of things which, as you said, are, they're based on, largely based on iteration rather than huge step jumps in what it is that we do. If we set our minds to it and if we believe it's possible, we began this podcast planning it in February of 2020, imagining that there were a group of people out there who wanted to hear from other people about what was possible because they wanted to do something, but they didn't have models of it. Uh, Ted Dendersmith, I think you're just a fabulous model of the sorts of things that can be done. Uh, Adriano and I are just so grateful to share time with you today. Thank you very much. And we're really looking forward to the next stage of the conversation. Excellent. Well, thanks for all you're doing. You guys are doing a remarkable work. So I'm sure lots of people appreciate your leadership and contributions. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.